Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Hi, I'm Toby Young, one of Quillette's London-based editors. The United Kingdom was due to leave the European Union on March 29th, but that date came and went, and the British government still hasn't resolved the question of how to leave, or indeed when. One of the most eloquent and erudite voices on the leave side of the Brexit debate is Robert Toombs, a professor of history at Cambridge and the author of The English and Their History, among other books. In addition to making the case for leaving the EU in the public square, he's the co-editor of Briefings for Brexit, a website that brings together the handful of British academics who are pro-Brexit. I spoke to him in his rooms at St John's College, Cambridge. Can you briefly summarise the case for leaving the EU? Briefly is difficult. (laughs) Um, I would say, in my personal opinion, is that first of all one has to look at the EU, its direction, the problems it's facing, which are above all political. The EU itself, as a system, creates opposition to itself, which it has no way of resolving. And therefore I think it's very clear, one can see it by looking about around Europe, that the EU is creating greater and greater internal opposition, which sooner or later is bound to have some sort of consequence. And the only response the EU can have, again, as a system and as a, a whole system of government, is, to, is, is denial and to try to screw the lid down. So I think it, would be, it, it was first of all sensible for us to, to be very cautious about continuing as part of this project. The second point I would say is that we are in any case uh, diverging from the EU and have been for 20 years. Uh, I'm I'm a bit cautious about saying that we are a unique case. On one hand there's Britain and on the other hand there's Europe. I think in many ways we were a a pioneer uh, in being the first to express scepticism about this project as a nation. But in, in most countries there are similar reactions that are appearing now. But where, where we are somewhat different is that we are, we are diverging economically and have been for 20 years or more, in the sense that more and more of our trade is with the outside world. Less and less a proportion of our trade is with the EU. And therefore, to try to keep us tied to the EU, as is the present um, will of Parliament, it seems, is, is not to create frictionless trade with our largest market. It's to create frictioned trade with our largest markets which are outside the EU and to tie us as closely as they seem able to a declining part of our market. So I think it's often said by Remainers nobody voted to make themselves poorer but Parliament seems to be doing precisely that. So in, in, in five or ten or twenty years time if we remain tied into the EU system we shall be running serious political and economic dangers. Those are the two basic reasons, I think I would say, but there is a third reason that has arisen since the referendum. And that is, and I admit that I was somewhat hesitant personally about how to vote, 
that having voted, and I think quite a number of Remainers now take this view too, having, as the nation has voted legally and democratically, and as this vote has been repeated in the, uh, in the 2017 general election, in effect, um, it is a terrible blow to our whole political system if we are now to say that the, that the vote is not to be honoured. It would be the first time ever that I can think of that this would have been done. And it would be unthinkable in other circumstances. One, one cannot imagine for a moment that if the Scots, let's say, had voted to become independent, the, the British establishment would have done everything it could to sabotage that vote. It would have been accepted. The EU and our membership of the EU seems to have subverted our politics in a way that I don't think any of us expected. And now the, the, the issue has become not simply one or two points more or less on our GDP, but who governs the country, how it is governed, where sovereignty lies, and whether we are really a functioning democracy anymore. Just for the benefit of our international listeners, why do you say that the 2017 general election result effectively repeated the decision of the 2016 referendum? Because the two parties, the two main parties, the Conservatives and Labour, uh, who represent the great majority of the electorate, both explicitly stated in their, in their party manifestos that they accepted the result of the referendum. Uh, in, for Labour, this was a necessary thing because many Labour voters are for leaving the EU. And Labour, for Labour, it was an effective way of taking that issue out of the general election campaign. Because it was said, well, it's all been decided now. It's no longer an issue. Therefore, let's talk about something else. But then we realised that, in fact, it still remained an issue, that those who opposed the decision to leave had no intention of accepting that decision, that popular decision, and had every intention of trying to stop it. So it was, it was temporarily taken out of political debate, only to be brought back in a way that seems to me quite improper by those who had always opposed it. I don't blame the EU. I don't, Mr Juncker, Mr Barnier have become something of hate figures, at least on my side of the argument, but it seems to me that their behaviour has been perfectly understandable. They want to preserve the EU. They're afraid of the consequences of Brexit. They intend to make Brexit as difficult as possible and have said so, to give them credit, they've been quite open about it. And they want to deter other countries from possibly following in our footsteps. So since the referendum result, you've become quite an energetic uh, advocate on the Leave side. You participate in public debates. You write for The Spectator and for The Telegraph. You're part of briefings for Brexit. Is this your first foray into political activism? Yes, uh, a sort of senile um, career in, in politics. Um, yes, I mean, I've always been interested in politics, but just as an elector, as a citizen. It was never part of my ambition to become um, a politician or to be involved in politics in any active sense, other than as a simple voter. But I, I kind of drifted into this or got pulled into it. And, um, you know, sometimes you feel you... Um, Decisions are made for you and you find yourself in a certain position and you have to respond to the, to the circumstances. And that's, I think, well, that's all I've done. And have you enjoyed the experience of being a political activist, effectively, for the first time in your life? Uh, it's been very interesting. Um, let's, let's say I, I won't be at all sorry when it's over. Hmm. Uh, in some ways I've enjoyed it. At least I've found it a st quite a stimulating experience. And at times I felt it was encouraging to think that someone who was not a politician and who was not 
a member of a, of a political organisation, um, could exercise a tiny amount of influence. And, and our group, which is a very, very informal and small group, it, it's, it's really three or four people and, and, and a number of occasional contributors, that we were able to, to have some kind of effect. And I thought, well, you know, this is what democracy ought to be. It should be ordinary people making their views known. Uh, but, of course, perhaps we were always labouring under an illusion that one can make one, one's views known, but that doesn't necessarily affect the way that politicians behave. And what's been the reaction of your academic colleagues, um, the vast majority of whom are pro-Remain? Has it been fairly courteous and civilised, or has it sometimes been less so? I've always found it courteous and civilised, but then I am... Um, quite senior in all, in all senses of the word, both in my position and by age. Uh, if I were younger, and probably if I were more involved in university activities, I would have found it more difficult. But I should say that I, I know several younger colleagues who felt the need to maintain their confidentiality. Mm -hmm. We occasionally publish things by uh, anonymously because people in the academic profession believe, and I think they're right, that their careers would suffer if they were known to be supporting what is, in effect, the legal majority decision supported by Her Majesty's government. But so unacceptable is that within academe that many feel that their careers would be harmed, even people in quite senior positions. I met a professor the other week at a conference who said he was very much on our side and he'd like to write for our website, but he said, um, I'm applying for a job at another university, so you'll have to wait till the decision's made before I dare say what I really think. And that seems to me utterly deplorable. Do you think that the lack of tolerance for dissenting views when it comes to issues people care passionately about like this is a fairly new phenomenon in British universities and across the Anglosphere? Or do you think it was ever thus? Um, no, I think it's new. Um, I think we've, we've gone back to a time in, uh, of heresy hunting, um, which for several centuries we had, we had left. Um, when, I was, when I started my career, there were people who were known to be of extreme political views. That's to say, there were people who were well-known to be Marxists, there were people who were well-known to be conservatives. It, was, it would have been unthinkable that this would have affected their academic careers, which, were, which depended on their, on their research and their publications and so on. That's completely changed now, I think, I'm sorry to say. I mean, there, there have been fairly notorious cases very recently in a lot of universities, including this one, in which people's uh, invitations have been withdrawn, people have not been allowed to speak, people have been, in a sense, warned off certain topics um, because of organised lobbies which will try to destroy them if they express views, even views that are, let's say, absolutely um, intellectually sound, which are, as it were, scientifically provable. Nevertheless, the wrong sort of view can, can lead you to be, uh, to be hounded. It hasn't happened to me, as, as, I, as I made clear, but it certainly does happen. And I think one could not depend on academic institutions now to protect their members from that kind of um, that kind of treatment. So, yes, I, I'm afraid I do agree. Um, we are in a much less intellectually free um, atmosphere than was the case a generation ago, and I don't see any sign of that ending in the near future. So, just to take the most recent example, the 
decision by the Cambridge Divinity Faculty to rescind the invitation to Jordan Peterson to become a visiting fellow and give a series of lectures at Cambridge this autumn. Do you think that a majority of your colleagues think that was the wrong decision and it's just a vociferous minority who lobbied for it? Or do you think actually the intolerance of views as dissenting as mm. Jordan Peterson's from the kind of left orthodoxy, that that intolerance is now fairly widespread and is now the majority view? I don't think it's a majority view. I think probably most people do feel that um, toleration of other people's views is necessary in, ac in academic life, but they're not willing to raise their heads above the parapet to defend it. Um, I think we've seen that. I think even a few years ago in Cambridge, there would have been a lot of voices who would have um, deplored the way Peterson was treated. Um, now I think they're simply not there. They, they, they've, they've, they've retired or, they, or they're dead. I mean, it's a, it's a, it seems to me it's a rather old tradition now of tolerance, of, of, of liberal in the, old, in the old sense, tolerance of dissenting views, and a feeling that this was a, a vital part of our university tradition and had to be defended. That, I think, has really rather gone. So I think many people would feel very uneasy about the way Peterson was treated, and especially the way it was done, the discourtesy and so on. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that there are very few people who would be willing to be publicly express that view. I listened to you talk last night at the Conservative Philosophy Group in London, and one of the things you said which, which struck me most forcefully was that for the first time you're aware of in the history of the United Kingdom, a majority of the intelligentsia, of the educated elite, are siding against what appears to be the United Kingdom in favour of, I don't think you use the word foreign power, but in favour of an external power. You've you talked before in articles for The Spectator about the, re the return of declinism amongst mm. the British intelligentsia, something that I think he said was first reared its head around about 1870 when Britain found itself having to compete with Germany uh, for the first time, and then reappeared in the 1950s and in the 1970s and has come roaring back again during this Brexit debate. Yes. Where do you think the roots of this declinism come from? Why, why are so many members of the intelligentsia uh, convinced that there's no future for, the, for England as an independent sovereign nation state and the only way we can hope to compete with large economies like China and the United States and India is if we uh, merge, effectively merge our sovereignty, that they might not yeah. be like that, with other European nations and become part of a super state, a trading block of a similar scale, and in that way protect our economic interests. But historically, the era of the United Kingdom as an independent sovereign nation state is over, and anyone like you who imagines that there is a future along those lines is just being romantic and antediluvian and we have to face the reality that that era is behind us. Yes. I wrote a piece in the, the Financial Times, their request, talking about the, the continuing ex viability of nation states 
And I've never had such uh, virulent, hostile comment from anything I've ever written from readers of the FT. And I think this sense of decline is a Europe-wide one. We can talk about our particular variant of it, which I think is, is very interesting. And I think it was, it was partly due to the, the, I think, exaggerated sense of Britain's past power. You, know, you, you occasionally hear people say, well, once we ruled the world and now we're just a small European state. To which my answer would be, we never ruled the world and we're not just a small European state. The, the, the sense of decline is largely illusory. But it's certainly there, and it certainly, I think, applies to the whole of Europe. One would, when you hear many of our continental friends talking about their, their own reasons for supporting the EU, one has a very similar sense of Europe as a declining continent, whose survival depends on whatever its failings, whatever its disadvantages, it is, as it were, condemned to, you know, to, to hang together or we hang separately. And the sense that the, out, the big world outside, the world of the United States and China, are threatening. Well, I, th I think, I would say, that people in Britain do not have quite the same sense of um, a hostile world. It's partly because our language is, is the global language. Therefore, travelling to other parts of the world outside Europe is, is not such an alien experience to us. It's often indeed a very familiar one. Uh, if you go to Canada or the United States or Australia or New Zealand or South Africa or indeed India, you often find, at least I find myself feeling, at least as, ho as, as at home as I would, indeed rather, perhaps rather more than I would in Poland or Bavaria or, or, um, or Portugal. So I think, this is a, sorry, a rather long answer, but I think there is a sense of decline which particularly affects the, the political elite. Um, I think it's true of perhaps the whole of Europe. Um, I think we have a particular variant of it which is based on the sense of once being an imperial power and no longer being. And I think it does create this, um, this mindset that says, OK, the EU has lots of flaws, but we can't do without it because otherwise we're condemned to loss of influence, loss of wealth, loss of security and so on. And it just seems to me that that is a, a misreading of, of reality mm -hmm. in all sorts of ways. Mm -hmm. But it's a, it seems to be a very powerful... Uh, one could imagine conservatives saying this. We, we have to be a great power still, or we have, to, we have to still be an influential state, therefore we have to be in the EU. But of course there's, there's also a left-wing variant of this, which is that we're a, we're a terrible country with a terrible culture and a terrible history, we have to somehow lose ourselves in a greater European whole. Um, and so one, one might hear people say, I don't, I don't feel very British. Um, I, feel, I feel much more European. Um, one hears that of Germans too, but with rather more obvious justification. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think there is a sense um, that, for some people at least, that the EU or the idea of European supranationalism is an escape from their own history. Uh, I no longer want to be Italian or German or British. Mm -hmm. I want to be European. And I don't really care how awful the EU is in reality because it's how I feel that counts. It's, 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 the, it's the warm glow I get from thinking of myself as being part of this great international organisation that, that, that means more to me than the idea of being English or British or French or German. 
one of the peculiarities of this way of thinking is that people who want to be European rather than British or German or Italian or even French, so that's pretty unusual, um, see it almost as a way of absolving themselves from the sins of their particular yes. country. Yeah, absolutely. But once you become part of a European superstate, why don't the sins carry over from the constituent parts into the new whole? Oh, yeah. Why, why, do, why does one somehow <laughs> shed the sin of being involved in the transatlantic slave trade, for instance, Absolutely. if one pulls one's sovereignty yeah. with other countries? I mean, you're yes. not shedding the sin. You're just sharing it, perhaps. Well, you're, you're, you're it's, like, it's like changing your name, getting, getting yourself yes. a new identity. You know? yes. I identify as European now. But I agree, because if you wanted to take um, a critical view of European history, you would say here is a continent that has um, invented totalitarianism. Um, that, has, that genocide is, is, is largely a modern European phenomenon that has, um, that has conquered much of the world and exploited it. I don't want to be European, I might say. I'm ashamed of Europe's history. I'm ashamed of European culture. But that isn't, in fact, how people seem to think. Mm -hmm. Now, why they don't, I don't know. I think one would have to ask them. Mm -hmm. I remember saying to one of my colleagues, um, but this European language that you use. It's really a new kind of nationalism. It's, a, it's an attempt to, to recreate the mechanisms of 19th century nationalism and, and make it into a bigger unit. Mm -hmm. And he said, no, no, it's not. It's not, it's not nationalism. It's, it's, it's something that transcends or abolishes nationalism. But it seems to me it's not. It seems to me, at least, that the language that people use about Europe, the attempt to create European citizenship, the European flag, European national anthem, all the very expensive efforts that the EU makes to, to, Im, to, Im, to imprint itself on people's minds is exactly what 19th century national states mm -hmm. like Germany and Italy did. I wanted to ask you how, as a historian, how new you think this anti-nationalist sentiment um, amongst English intellectuals is. I mean, Orwell famously wrote of the British intelligentsia, I think actually the English intelligentsia, mm -hmm. that they take their cookery from Paris and their opinions from Moscow. <laughs> yes. And he said England is perhaps the only great country whose intellectuals are ashamed of their nationality. <laughs> it's yes. a strange fact, but it is unquestionably true that almost any English intellectual would feel more ashamed of standing to attention during God Save the King than of stealing from a poor box. Yes. Um, I discussed this with Douglas Murray last night and he said, ah, yes, but the difference is they didn't really mean it then, whereas they really mean it now. <laughs> well, I think they really meant it then, but I think it, it applied to far fewer people. Uh, the sort of people who, who then, you know, the, let's say the, the MPs, the civil servants, the foreign office, the, the ambassadors, the diplomats, who, who in, in the 1930s would have stood for God Save the King, well, now I think probably not want to start, stand for God Save the Queen. So I think there has been a change. I think it's first of all got a much wider phenomenon. And I think it's also um, become pro probably, as you suggest, more deeply felt. But uh, I don't think it's, again, a, a solely English phenomenon. Whether or not it's, it's a more powerful feeling here, I don't know. But if it is, it's, it's partly, I would say, it's partly been um, aggravated by our debates over Brexit. But if you go to Australia... 
you'll find people lamenting the awful history of Australia's uh, genocide, in inverted commas, of Aboriginal people. Americans are ashamed of their own country and its president. Maybe not the French, as you say so much. Of course, Germans. I know Germans who loathe German culture, one of Europe's great cultures, because it's associated too much for them with a, with a, with a very dark past. So I don't think we're unique in this. I think it is a, a widespread phenomenon among the intelligentsia. In the case of Britain, I think it seems to go back to the end of the 19th century, oddly enough, when the, f the first uh, impulse was towards imperial federation. It was Joseph Chamberlain, if I remember rightly, who said, um, the, day, the future is for great empires, not for little states. And oddly enough, some of the people who, along with Chamberlain and Lord Milner in South Africa, wanted to create a British Empire Federation, in, in, towards the end of their lives supported European Federation. It's as if they had absolutely decided that national states, you know, these, these weak, vulgar, democratic little states had to give way to some greater unity. And I remember uh, a, a Labour Party intellectual, I think it was Harold Lasky, saying, I'd much, this was in about 1944, I'd much rather Stalin take over the whole of Europe than, than to go back to these quarrelling little democratic states, or words to that effect. So I think there's for, for a long time been among intellectuals a desire for some, some great construction which they can feel they have contributed to. Whereas, of course, the, 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 most of the nation states, including ours, do not owe very much to their intellectuals. They owe a lot to their history, and they owe a lot to ordinary people. You know, Burke's Wisdom of Unlettered Men. But something like the EU, perhaps like its predecessor, I shouldn't say predecessor, except in time, the Soviet Union, attracts intellectuals because they feel it's something that they've made, something that, in a sense, belongs to them. Thank you for that Harold Lasky quote. I'm, I'm due to debate the um, Harold Lasky Professor of Politics at the LSE about the virtues and vices of nationalism, so that's, I'll use that. I'll check um, it for you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> the French intellectual class, as you said, seem to be less contemptuous of France than the English intellectual class is of England. And yet they did enjoy quite a sustained flirtation with Stalinism, Raymond Aron wrote a they did. book about it. Yes. But nonetheless, it doesn't seem to be nearly as pronounced a phenomenon in France as it is in England and perhaps in America and Australia. Why is that? Do you think? I think in different circumstances you'd see it come up very much. I mean, imagine, and it's not unimaginable, that, uh, that Marine Le Pen or her, her niece were elected president and France had a, 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 a nationalist government and France decided to leave the EU. I think you would then see French intellectuals turning against what they would see as the stupid majority of their fellow citizens, very much in the way that ours has done, but probably in a more virulent way. And I, I once wrote that if, if France tried to leave the EU, you'd have blood in the streets. And I think that would be the case. We, that's something we have not had. We've got very het up, we've got angry, we've got very rude about each other, but we've not been violent. I think in a number of countries you would have a violent conflict if, if the plebs tried to impose their... Their, their wishes on the intelligentsia. And I think, as I say, you, you would even in France get um, a very, as, as has happened in the past, a very hostile description of the intellectual and cultural inferiority of ordinary French people. And there is always there's quite a lot of snobbery, intellectual snobbery in French life. But if, if there is a difference, I suppose it's because intellectuals in France feel that 
French culture, which is so much, of course, the thing that they identify with, is under attack, especially from American, or as they often say, Anglo-Saxon mm -hmm. influence. And therefore, there's a sort of rallying around the flag and a willingness to see France as being the, the, the great defender of civilized values. And their devotion to the EU is partly because they think that they can impose this on the EU. Um, that you know, the EU will become the outer ramparts defending French culture from the vulgar tides of Anglo-Saxon commercialism. One of the best predictors of how people voted in the 2016 EU referendum was their level of education. So the more educated they were, the more likely they were to vote Remain. I'm, I'm wondering the extent to which you think the way in which the history of the British Isles and England in particular is taught in schools and in universities is responsible for that. For three or four generations now, school children have been taught that the British Empire is a source of unending shame. Uh, the way in which the slave trade is taught, I think, leaves a lot of school children with the impression that it was a uniquely British evil. Uh, and Britain's role in ending the slave trade is much neglected. And the story we're told is very much not our island story. It's, it's, a, it's a story of exploitation and appropriation, theft, murder, genocide. To what extent do you think that's responsible for the link between how educated people are and how hostile they are to Brexit? My impression is that not much British history is taught at all in schools uh, and, and, not, and practically no imperial history. So I think if people pick up these negative narratives, as you say, it's probably not from the school curriculum, it's probably from the, the more, a more general cultural milieu, you know, from the television, from films and so on. So I think ignorance about our history is, is, is probably more common than a negative view of it, though I agree that it has often been taught in a negative way. But again, that's not unique to Britain. It's probably fairly common across the democratic world. Of course, it's not the case in China or Russia, but I'm, I, I'm pretty sure it is the case in America, Australia, as I've said, and other, other democratic countries. So that may be something that we, we ought to think about. Should not democracies be at least aware of their own history? and not only of their misdeeds, but also of their achievements. Otherwise, what is there to defend? Why should we bother about our democratic values? Because they're worthless. That's the danger. But I mean, I think, as for why educated people have been so opposed to Brexit, I don't think it's really an intellect, at least it's certainly not solely, and I doubt if it's even mainly an intellectual analysis of the, of the, of the question. I think it's partly class, um, it's partly interest, um, it's partly, in academe certainly, where, is my, where are my research grants coming from? Will I be able to send my students, or if I'm a student, will I be able to travel in Europe and go on an Erasmus year, that sort of thing. It's often very down-to-earth mm -hmm. uh, considerations of personal convenience. It's, uh, it's often a sense of, I think, the sort of person you are. I'm, I'm a nice cosmopolitan person who loves uh, French food and who, who visits Italian art galleries. Therefore, I must obviously support Europe, and therefore I must be in favour of the EU, rather than uh, any, any, any understanding of what the EU does, mm -hmm. you know, which I would say 
first and foremost is the creation of economic depression and mass unemployment over large parts of Europe. Mm -hmm. That doesn't seem to have any purchase at all on their mm -hmm. views. And also, um, I think it's, uh, it's a sort of tribal thing. For some people, it's part of the left-wing sense of who are the good and who are the bad groups in the world. Europe must be good because it's international. Um, Brexit must be bad because it's xenophobic and racist. You know, it, it doesn't matter what, what the reality is, it's, it's perception. So a lot of people who have brought, been brought up and want to be thought of as progressive have adopted the EU as part of a sort of progressive package. So a, a mixture of self-interest, of tribalism, and I think that accounts for, I would say, probably most of it. Mm -hmm. Of course, for some people, there is, their careers have been based on some sort of engagement with the EU, whether in business or in, or in the civil service or in academe. And it's asking, in a way, it's asking a lot of people to accept that the things that they've been working on for years are, to some extent now, going to be disposed of. We no longer want mm -hmm. them. So if you're a diplomat or a civil servant or indeed an, ac an academic who's spent a lot of time building up a network of contacts in Europe, you, you, know, you or I might say, well, those contacts will still exist. Mm -hmm. But for them, this is a big investment of their time, which they don't want to lose. Um, I remember, that I think the first time I was ever asked to speak publicly on this question, one of my scientific colleagues was on the other side of the debate. And he said, for me, it's a no-brainer. My research funding comes from the EU. Most of my postdoctoral students are from EU countries. How could I possibly not be in favour of staying in the EU? You could say to him, well, you know, does everybody in the country benefit in the way you do? But I don't think many people have asked themselves that question. Perhaps I overstated it, and perhaps the responsibility that schools bear for this link between how educated people are and how much self-loathing they seem to have for their country isn't because they're actively taught to mm. loathe Britain's history in the classroom, but because they're not provided with any narrative to set against those other uh, gravitational pulls yes, I'm sure on that's their imaginations. True. Yeah, I'm sure so that's there's, true. there's there's no counterweight. No, that's true. Because we used to have a story, yes, which was you know which which was is often called Whig history. Mm -hmm. It was a story of uh, the growth of liberties, the growth of parliamentary democracy. Mm -hmm the transformation of the empire into the Commonwealth. So it was a story with a sort of happy ending that we could all feel rather mm. good about. Well, it may not have been a wholly true story, but it was partly true. And there were other good stories one could tell as well. But I think now, as perhaps you suggest, I don't think we really have a sense of what our national history means. Certainly children are not taught it. I wrote a book about this, which you kindly mentioned, and I don't believe it really does, at least it wasn't my intention to provide a new national narrative. But the nicest thing I think anyone ever said to me was at a, a sort of book launch little talk I gave. And uh, a young woman from Asian, East African Asian background came up to me and said, I never really thought of myself as being part of English history before, and now I do. Uh, and I think we haven't made people feel that it's their history or that they are part of it. And I think it's a sin of omission rather than of commission. Uh, I don't know that people are really indoctrinated by their teachers much. The teachers might like to think that they can do it. I don't think that they're very successful indoctrinators. Mm -hmm. I don't think my students take much notice of what I say. Um, but I think 
what it really is is that we don't give them any 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 intellectual baggage which helps them to as it were to navigate their history to understand what our country is all about mm -hmm. what it's done mm -hmm. but you say when you wrote the english and their history you weren't consciously trying to provide school children like the girl that came up to you with a narrative which could provide people from different ethnic backgrounds with a sense of common identity that was something you discovered the book had done after you'd written it mm. it's for some people anyway yeah i expect there are lots of people who hated it yeah <laughs> do you think that if we do end up remaining mm. that that could kick start an english nationalist movement I mean, one of the peculiarities of post-war British politics is that English nationalism is the dog that hasn't barked. We've yes. seen Welsh nationalist movement, yes. Scottish nationalist movement, but English nationalism remains embryonic. Do you think that could change if we end up remaining? Well, I hope not, if by that we mean um, a kind of, a, a, you know, a radical, rather extreme uh, form of nationalism. I mean, the... the you, one could say that the political, you know, the historical role of the Conservative Party has been to prevent the emergence in Britain of an extreme right-wing party, which we've never really had. You know, people say UKIP, but UKIP was a rather a flash in the pan, and also it wasn't terribly right-wing. But the sort of things that you have in France, in Italy, in Greece, in Germany, we, we do not have here, and it's because the Conservative Party creates a broad right of centre party, which includes people who are potentially far more radical. If the Conservative Party, due to its present fail failings, were to, in some senses, lose that role, collapse, divide, then I think we almost certainly would get a more radical right-wing movement emerging. And I think that would not be desirable. Let's think about it from the other point of view. Let's suppose we do end up leaving which I still think is on balance marginally more likely, even if it's uh, not quite in the way you and I would like. Mm. Chances are those members of the intelligentsia who've been agitating for Remain will feel very alienated and angry. But if Britain is going to make a success of its post-Brexit future it's going to need those elites on side, uh, particularly in the City of London. Do you think that there's a potential rift there that will take a long time to heal and could actually damage Britain's economic prospects in a post-Brexit world? Or do you think that actually they couldn't really be any angrier than they are at the moment and once the issue's settled, even if it's not settled in the way they'd like, they will eventually reconcile themselves to it and muck in? It seems to me we don't have to worry too much about the City of London and business interests who will adapt or who have already adapted and who um, will see opportunities which exist outside the EU. And many of them will find life outside the EU far more attractive than life inside. So I don't think we'll, we'll, we'll have to worry about, as, as it were, the business elite. I think the, among the intelligentsia, the, interestingly, the number who expressed a strong attraction or um, loyalty to the EU before the referendum was quite small. 
it was only something about like three percent of the population or something like that that seems to become rather more radicalized and perhaps bigger largely i think because of the great agitation that's been carried on over the last two or three years and because of the lack of direction of the country what i would like to see as you would i think is for us to have some sort of clean brexit which will mean that negotiations will not, and uncertainty will not drag on for another two or three years, but it will be quite clear what decision has been made and that that decision has been to leave. Then I think what is quite likely to happen is there will be some sort of EU crisis which will cut the ground from under the, the Remainers. I mean, one of the reasons I think why one, why I would argue that we should, should, should leave is because of the economic and political instability of the EU, which I may have mentioned earlier. Um, a lot of people expect some sort of financial crisis in the EU, in the Eurozone. Um, that would make the EU far less attractive as a future partner. So I think the, the idea that we'll have a lot of intellectuals saying we have to campaign to get back into the mm -hmm. EU, when the EU will become more and more evidently a failing institution, if we're right, means it seems to me that there will be reconciliation. What there won't be, but then there hasn't been since George Orwell's day and before, is a, is a, is a kind of you know, patriotism of the intellectuals, of a, not of a nationalist kind, but of a sort of civic kind, mm -hmm. a, a, a sense of, of devotion to, a sense of responsibility for the welfare of the country as a whole. I think that, um, that will take some time to create, if it's ever created. Your book about the English is quite optimistic. It's an optimistic account of our history and points optimistically towards a fairly bright future. And I think one of the things that distinguishes people on the leave side of this debate is that they are generally more optimistic about the future of Britain as an independent sovereign state. Mm -hmm. Has the manner in which the political class has tried to manage Brexit over the past almost three years made you less optimistic about the English? L not less optimistic about the English, far less optimistic about what, what would once have been called the ruling class, the, the governing elite. Yes, I think that they have, um, perhaps I could refer to a, a short book written by a colleague of mine, Chris Bickerton, called The, the Citizen's Guide to the EU, which he talks about, um, or he suggests that we have ceased to be a nation state, along with all the other European EU states, and have become what he calls a member state. And a member state is not the same as a nation state, because the elites have become part of a transnational system, in which their, their loyalties in some cases, and certainly their experience, is, is focused not towards their own country, but towards the EU as a whole. And it's obviously proving extremely difficult to extricate us from that. Indeed, I think that's really our only problem. It's getting the people who govern us to realise that we are going to, at least, that we want to be outside the system and that it's their duty to make that happen. Uh, instead, we've had, I think, people saying it's impossible, it cannot be done. The best we can do is to limit the damage. And I think that's really been the cause of our of our political turmoil over the last three years, more than anything else. People often struggle to find the right historical analogy, Remainers in particular, about this moment of what they see 
uh, national humiliation and sometimes say it's the most, it's the greatest national humiliation since Suez or the greatest failure of our political class since the American War of Independence. <laughs> but one of the things which I think makes the current moment different from Suez, for instance, or even the IMF crisis in yes. the 70s, is that back then it felt as though those moments could be terminal. They could be harbingers of a bleak future. But we now know that we were able to recover from those moments of crisis. And we did find the political leaders, I mean, not everyone believes this, but I certainly <laughs> do, that were able to um, revive Britain mm. and inject a feeling of optimism back into the country and rejuvenate the animal spirits. Yes. There haven't been all that many of those, I think. No. But final question, I suppose. Are you optimistic that our political class can be renewed, can be rejuvenated? They have, I think, even for cynics like me, surprised by how dreadfully they've performed yes. over the past almost three years now. Yeah. Do you think, though, that once this lot are swept aside, assuming most of them are, that we can find the seeds of renewal, new leaders who can embody the optimistic spirit of a post-Brexit Britain and bring the nation together after this? Well, I try to feel moment. optimistic. I think in some ways the Suez crisis was worse in that it was, after all, a government, a prime minister, conspiring to commit an illegal act of war. The IMF crisis was in some ways worse because it appeared to be a sign of the collapse of a whole economic and social system. I think the thing that makes me relatively optimistic, or at least less pessimistic than I might otherwise be, is that the, the country as a whole seems to be in rather, good, rather a good state. You know, the economy is doing better than the Eurozone, certainly. We all know the, you know, the mantra, high levels of, un of, of employment, rising wages, all that kind of thing. So I think it's really a, it's, it's a crisis of the political class. And if the country is being humiliated, it's not the country's fault um, in, in, a, in the way that, you know, you might say the, the economic crises of the 70s, when it seemed that the country as a whole was, in, was on the verge of meltdown. You know, we were all, it was all, we were all to blame. Mm -hmm. Now we're not all to blame. It's the people to, who, are, who are to blame are the people who are supposed to be governing us. And I think there has to be a clear out. Yes. Uh, I think, I hope many politicians will think that other careers await them. I hope a number of officials will feel that they can retire to the House of Lords or to, to the, the boards of companies and that we shall have a, a, a degree, quite a substantial degree of renewal. But all that depends on finding a person as, who will be Prime Minister and who, who is capable and who is strong enough and intelligent enough to do this. Well, cometh the man or woman, cometh the hour or the other way around, cometh the hour, cometh the man. I hope someone will emerge, but uh, at the moment, uh, it's not very obvious who it will be. Robert Toombs, thank you very much for talking to Quillette. My pleasure. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. 
head to quillette.com where you will find more content.